I love that song as a preparation for the receiving of God's word because it's just so profoundly rich. Just thinking through that line, what other name is undefeated? When we come to a marvelous text as we are this morning, it is the profound riches of God is on display and it's great to reflect that in the testimony of singing and praising our Lord. Now we get into the study of God's word and so I told the first hour, I was absolutely terrified at this section as uh, it's profoundly rich. I think to set up this, I, I want to point out Peter's words. If you turn over to Second Peter chapter 3 and just set up this text, I'm comforted by these words from Peter because Peter gives us insight into the Apostle Paul. Gives his insight into the theological troubles and difficulties that he sees as an apostle and a minister of the church. And he says these words in Second Peter chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Peter basically saying everything that I'm saying, Paul's been saying to us, he's written about this, and recognize what God is doing in his sovereign purposes and have a proper perspective. Then notice 16 as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. It comforts my heart when Peter says, sometimes it's hard to understand what Paul's writing. Having spent now a few years in Romans, I've been working our way through this marvelous text. I can understand, yes, indeed, there are times where Paul's words are hard to understand. But then that warning, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures, there is a danger to twist and to distort and to confuse and to misrepresent. And so there is a kind of fear and dread as we turn over to Romans chapter 11. The fear and dread is the uh, not representing what Paul is saying correctly. And then coming into this text, knowing that it is hard, knowing that there are difficulties and it presses us because maybe others have taught you and have pre- presented other ideas to you. And when we're coming back to the Apostle Paul, Paul is reshaping your thinking and there's a kind of struggle in there that takes place in our heart. So I know this could be a, a challenge for you to, to wrestle through these things. Understand, I, I bear that burden and weight. That I agree with it. It reminded me this week as I was studying over a bunch of different things studying this week, but there was a, a particular day this week where I was just so exhausted in the study. I came home and my mind was just completely run out. I mean, I have, it's been a long time since I've been in that stage and I said to my wife, as I remembered Ecclesiastes 12.12, 12, 
It says, Beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Yeah, I get it. I get the burden. I get the weight. And I get when we come to texts like this in Romans eleven seven through 10, and we come to these profound doctrines that it just lays us low. It it's, it's, um, confronts us in such a way that we are, are challenged. And the more I think about why that is, I, I have generally looked out and know the nature of man. I mean, look, we want good news. Everyone wants good news. When somebody comes and says, I got good news, I have bad news. We're like, okay, give me the good news first because I want to dwell on the bad news. I, I want to dwell on the... Give me the bad news first because I want to dwell on the good news. No one's saying just give me the bad news and keep the good news for yourself. We're we're all saying give me the good news and make sure it's really good. I mean, we want the positive news, the positive affirmations. We want the encouragement. I mean, I just, again, making just a general observation about the Christian world today. Have you ever noticed the language in the Christian community today about God speaking to me? You know, like you sit down, every conversation you have in the Christian world, God said to me. Well, God told me this. Well, God said this. And everyone speaks that way. Here's what God is telling me, and this is what's going on. That's interesting to me as I've just observed that kind of language taking place. Um, I always observe it's predominantly falls in this direction. It's always good news. Like, it's always something I'd want to hear. God told me I need to be a professional football player. God told me I needed to have this career that pays this amount of money. God told me I need to marry this beautiful person. No, 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 no. It's always good news. Where's the God told me to have a low-paying job? Or God told me to, you know, and be in this humble estate. Where's the bad news? not there very often. It tends to be always the good news. It's just our own hearts. We're inclined to that. I'm sorry if I offended you by making that observation, but God told me to say that to you. So. <laughs> but the point in all of this is that sometimes we come to passages like we are here in Romans chapter 11, 7 to 10, and we come to the news that is harder to hear. The doctrines that are from our Heavenly Father that take us into kind of terrifying places that we don't know what to do with and understand why they're there. And if I was just a topical preacher, I would skip over this section so fast. But the fact that we are coming into this, expositing the themes that are unfolded for us, we must come to grips with understanding what the apostle is laying out. And I think there's a marvelous purpose for which Paul lays this out, and I hope to bring it up and out for you. Now in this section, Paul is bringing distinction. He's bringing distinction between the chosen and the rest. He's bringing distinction between the remnant and those who are not of the remnant. This language of choosing, this language of election, this language of God's choice, and those who have been chosen is language that is used throughout the Scripture. 
Not many press against it and don't like the terminology, but you need to see it is all over in the scriptures. The verbal form of the word, eklego, is to choose. It is used in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, when it says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It is an act of God willing to choose and select in certain individuals. Eklego. It's also used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 17, speaking of God choosing Israel, and that's the verbal form. But then there's the noun form of the same word, and it is eklege. Eklege, it's used here in Romans chapter 11, and it's used twice in Romans chapter 11. You see it in verse 5, notice. It says, in the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant, notice, according to God's gracious eklege, choice. Verse 7, right in the middle, says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen, eklege, obtained it. They are the chosen, those whom God has selected. He has selected by his gracious choice. Jump down to verse 28 of Romans chapter 11. It comes out again. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, God's eklege, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The same word used multiple times referring to God's choice, God's selecting of particular individuals. And again, it goes beyond Paul's writings. Peter uses the same word in 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Paul uses this word again in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. It has the idea of God choosing, God selecting. There's one other word that is used, and you can turn back to Romans chapter 8, and you see this other word, and this word is eklektos. And this word in Romans 8 and verse 33 is the word we get elect from. Notice it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? So you see in the scriptures, particularly here in Paul's writings, this use of the word choose, a choice, a particular group, a distinguished group, to distinguish one group against another. You have the elect, the chosen, those whom God has brought to himself. And then as back here in Romans chapter 11, verse 7, the ones who are chosen, selected, are contrasted as the rest. You have the chosen by God's gracious choice, and on the other hand, you have the rest, those who have not been chosen. This theme comes out, and it's this theme, this very theme of choosing, this very theme of election, this very idea that we start to struggle with, particularly when we start to talk about the other group, the rest, as Paul then explains what happens to the rest here in verses 7 through 10. And we, we struggle then with what God is doing, what is being accomplished. What we must understand as Paul is unfolding here in this argument is that God has his people. God has his people. Even if we don't see them all, he is accomplishing his purposes and he has his people. 
Even if we're like Elijah and we think to ourselves, I'm the only one left, there's no one else righteous, they've all abandoned, they've all forsaken your commandments, they've all turned astray, I'm the only one who walks uprightly, who loves you, who keeps your commandments, God, so protect me and address all of them. We're reminded of what verse 4 says when God says, No, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God is working. He's accomplishing his good purposes. He's saving. Even in Elijah's time, when Elijah thought he was alone, God still had his 7,000 that he preserved who kept from worshiping Baal. Even in this day and age when all is going on and we think that God's purposes have stopped and everyone's wickedness is ruling, God is still saving. He still has his chosen people. He is still selecting them even if we don't see what's happening. He is in control. And that's what Paul is demonstrating in this chapter, particularly chapter 11. He's demonstrating God's sovereign purposes and directing. But as he is demonstrating that, Paul is now making a distinction between the chosen, the elect, the people of God, the remnant versus the rest, those who are not the remnant, those who had not been chosen, those who are rebelling against God. These are the two groups that Paul is talking about here, and he is now going to specifically turn his attention to this latter group and give us an insight into it. And again, maybe as a high-level overview, before we start looking at the details, you say, what's happening in this text? Well, what is happening in this text is Paul is giving us understanding for why there is rebellion in Israel even at this time and how God is working and moving through it. Now just look at the text. Verse 7 through 10, here's what it says. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. And let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This now is Paul building a explanation for that last part of the phrase in verse 7, and the rest were hardened. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament. He quotes from a portion of Deuteronomy, chapter 29 and verse 4. He quotes from Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 10. And he quotes from Daniel, or from David in Psalm 69. Three different places that Paul draws from to build from the Old Testament a theology explaining the hardening of the heart of those who were not chosen. Now this is a profoundly rich theme to talk through and heavy. And it's a theme that if we're not careful, we will insert our own understanding in the text. 
that we will push our own perspective, our own logic, our own understanding, and before we know it, we're going to say something different than what God has said, and so we have to be very careful. And this is what made me absolutely terrified coming to this passage. Because not only do I have to speak with a kind of level of precision to make sure I don't go too far, but you need to listen with a kind of precision to make sure you understand exactly what I'm saying. And otherwise, we're going to err either way. Here's what you need to see. And again, patiently work with me, and I trust we can get through this together. It's interesting how Paul starts this in verse 7. Again, he starts with the question, what then? This is an implication for what he's just said before. Like he's been doing in all of his style, he raises a question, he's going to give an answer. So he raises the question, what then? And then he brings out this. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained I'm going to just stop right there for a second. This phrase, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, is the second time that Paul has brought up this argument. Turn back to chapter 9 and let me show you this. Chapter 9 and verse 30 and 31. Chapter 9, 30 and 31 says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, notice, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. The same issue came up, the same theme that Paul brings up. Israel was pursuing, Israel was seeking, Israel didn't obtain what it was seeking. Romans 9 and verse 32. And he brings up this theme again, Romans 11 and verse 7. Israel sought, but Israel didn't obtain what it was seeking. And you're saying, Paul, did you forget what you said? Is this kind of like you're just repeating yourself over and over again? No, actually what you need to see here is Romans 9:31 and Romans 11 verse 7. Paul asks the same question or makes the same starting point in his argument but he heads in two different directions. From Romans 9, 30 through 10, 21, he demonstrates with this question the universal guilt of man for their rebellion. And then in Romans 11 and verse 7, God, uh, Paul demonstrates God's work in that, that he is sovereign in accomplishing his good purposes. Romans 9, 31, Israel didn't obtain it, because they were rebellious. Israel didn't obtain it because they took the righteousness of God and they turned the righteousness of God on its head and they created their own righteousness and they sought to live by that righteousness. That's what he says there in chapter 10 in verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Israel is guilty because they sought it, they didn't receive it, they didn't receive it because they took God's plan and they perverted it and they made their own and they abandoned God's ways and they set up their own path and therefore they are guilty and God is just in his judgment of them because they have rejected the truth and they didn't obtain what they were seeking. But that's not the full answer. Now we come to Romans chapter 11 and verse 7. And Paul brings up the very same issue again. What? 
Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. The chosen obtained it, but Israel didn't obtain it. Why didn't Israel obtain it? Well, because it says the rest were hardened. And now, Paul answers the same question, same observation from a totally different vantage point, And he's showing God's sovereign purposes in this vantage point. God is hardening. God is directing. God is separating. God is distinguishing. Israel is guilty. They're accountable for their rebellion. They're, they're going to be held accountable for their rejection of God. They're going to be justly condemned because of their own actions, because of their own rebellion. And yet God has a purpose in all of this, and God is accomplishing his purpose, and he is distinguishing and separating out those people that belong to him from those who do not. Why is Israel rejected? Is it because of the sovereignty of God or is it because of human responsibility? The answer is yes. Yes. Yes, both vantage points are true. Yes, both vantage points are at work. Ultimately guilty under condemnation because of their own personal rebellion and yet God had a purpose and was directing and accomplishing exactly what he's intending to accomplish through them. How does all that work? We will all get in line and ask God when we get to heaven. How he operates and moves and directs in these things is a mystery. But I'm not, you know, I'm not overwhelmed by that because if God can create all that we see out of nothing, certainly he can handle this dynamic and not violate human agency or become the author of evil. What Paul demonstrates here then is God has a purpose to distinguish and to separate and to reveal those who are his and those who are not. God is actively at this work and making it known. And it's clear even in this section. In Romans, turn back to Romans chapter 9, and we see this in Romans chapter 9, in verse 23. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 22 through verse 24. We see this distinction between two different groups. Notice what Paul calls these two groups. He says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, and here's with the here's the first group, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He says, Well, what if God decided to patiently wait? To even though he wanted to show his power, able to show his power, willing to show his power, but he waited for these vessels of wrath. You contrast this one group with the next group, verse 23. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon, and notice, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from the among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Two groups Paul establishes in these verses. The first group are those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And the other group, those vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Two different groups that Paul has identified here. Those vessels of wrath are vessels prepared for destruction. They are what 
Ephesians 2, verse 3, described children of wrath. They are, as Romans 11, verse 7 describes, hardened. They are the ones who have rejected the gospel. These who are in opposition to the truth. My mind's flooding with all kinds of other ideas. Like, for example, this is where we all start when we enter into the world. Before we have heard the gospel, before we have believed, we are in this category under we are in the old Adam, the first Adam. We are under in rejection to the truth, hostile to God. We are under the prince of the power of the air, the son of the spirit that's working the sons of disobedience. We're in rebellion. But then there's this other group, the group of vessels of mercy, those who are prepared for glory, those who are graciously chosen, as, ele- as Romans 11.5 says, those who are from the Jew and the Gentile, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been born again, those who have the Spirit of God who dwell in them, those who walk in the light. These are the other group. And Paul distinguishes between these two groups, the group of the vessels of mercy and the group of the vessels prepared for destruction. These two groups. This is normal language throughout the scriptures of these groups. We almost, again, we live in a day and age where everything has to be equal and everything has to be fair and everyone has to be the same. The scriptures regularly make these defining groups. Just think about these terms. You have the redeemed and the unredeemed. You have the elect and the non-elect. You have the righteous and you have the unrighteous. You have those in the dark and those in the light. You have those who are rescued and those who are lost. You have those who are soft and you have those who are hard. Or let me just put biblical terms to it. Matthew chapter 7. You have those on the broad way leading to destruction and you have those on the narrow way leading to life. Or Matthew chapter 13. You have the distinction between the wheat and the tares. Or Matthew chapter 25. You have the distinction between the sheep and the goats. You have those who have the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8, and those who are in the flesh. You have those who are dead and those who are alive. The scriptures regularly speak of these differing groups. You have those which bear fruit and you have those who do not bear fruit. On and on this terminology goes. And we kind of recognize that terminology, it's natural. But it's here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 7 that Paul doesn't just stop at the distinguishing of the group. He drives in and describes what's happening to this other group. Those, Israel, which was seeking, didn't obtain it. But those who were chosen of God, those vessels of mercy, those, those children of the light... These ones obtained it, and those vessels of wrath, the rest, they were hardened. And this leads us to just the profound truth of God's activity in hardening. Now, quickly in our remaining time we have left, I want to answer two questions. There are actually three questions that are brought up between seven and verse 24, it is, what is hardening? How is God hardening? And why would God harden? Those three questions are brought out and answered in this particular text. 
The why answer comes from verses 11 through verse 24, and we'll leave that for our next study. But the how and the what of hardening, we will answer in these verses here, in verses 7 through 10, because Paul is giving us, basically, a theology of hardening here, a theology of God's activity. And as he's already brought this up once, he is circling back to this same theme again and is addressing it here. So the first question that would take place is, what is this hardening that is being demonstrated here in this text? What is it? Again, we need to understand that now, in our context, from Romans 9 through, verse, through chapter 11, this is the second time that Paul has brought it up. The first time he brought it up is in chapter 9 and verse 18. Notice it. Romans 9 and verse 18. This is after a section where God has said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll harden whom I will harden. I basically, um, verse 16, so then it doesn't depend on, depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So he's demonstrate God's sovereign right to, to demonstrate his work. And then verse 18 says this, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now the first time that Paul states this, he states it with an active verb here. That is, God does the hardening work, is in the active. God is actively demonstrating this. And you remember that when we worked through this particular text, what is demonstrated here is God's sovereign right and authority as creator to rule over his creation. And that he can do this because he is God. He can do this because he's the creator, because he's good in all of his dealings, and because no one could question him because he's God. He has that authority and that rule. So what Paul demonstrates in Romans 9 is basically, to put it in kind of oblique uh, you know, theological terms, the godness of God is he rules. That's who he is. He is God and he can do what he can, wants to do because no one has the authority to come back and question him. One can't say, well, the pot can't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? We have no authority to demonstrate to God, you must be conformed to our image. That's what Paul defends in Romans chapter 9, which raised the natural question, well then, how is that fair? And God and Paul anticipates that and answers that. But Romans chapter 11, there's a different angle that Paul takes. What is happening here in Romans chapter 7? In verse 11, it says this, and the rest were hardened, and this is now in the passive form, speaking about the hardening was brought upon the agents, on the, on the subjects. The non-elect, the non-remnants, the ones who were the rest, they were hardened. It was brought upon them. What happens then, what the object here of hardening is then, the what to the question is, one is made stiff, made hard, opposing the things of God. That is the what. The question then is, well then how did this take place? 
And that's Paul's explanation from verses 8 through 10. How, then, did this hardening come? What is it? It is the resisting, opposing the things of God. How did it happen? Well, verses 8 through 10 explains. Again, notice that phrase there, that just as it is written, this is now Paul quoting Old Testament verses. And as I said, he quoted from three different sources. He quoted from Moses. He quotes from Isaiah, and he quotes from David, which means that he quotes from the law, from the prophets, and from the historical writings, meaning he's quoting from the entirety of the Old Testament. And also, I didn't belabor it the first hour, and I won't do the textual criticism with you, but if you wish, I can show you the details, how Paul quotes actually from the Septuagint and not the Hebrew Bible, and we can get into all of that on a side note. But the point that Paul is demonstrating here is through the testimony of all the Old Testament texts, God is at work bringing or demonstrating his work of hardening. And notice then what the hardening is. And I think the clarity comes when you understand the verses that Paul is selecting from. One of them is Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 10. And Isaiah 29, verse 10 says this, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. Meaning, here's how God has hardening. He has taken away the prophets and the seers. He has taken away the messengers that would bring to them revelation. He has taken away understanding. He has taken away truth. This is one way in which God does the hardening work. And I can illustrate this for you. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13, and we see the illustration of this. Matthew chapter 13. This is at a crucial point in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He had been rejected by the religious leaders. They were looking for signs and looking for wonders. Christ just stops and he turns and he begins, in Matthew's account, he begins to speak to the crowds in parables. He's no longer speaking plainly to them. He's giving them parables. And the first parable was the parable of the seed and the sower. To which then the disciples ask a question. Notice Matthew 13 and verse 10. The disciples observe this and they ask, Why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning, how come you're not just speaking to them plainly like you speak to us and like you used to speak to them? Why are you now speaking to them in parables? Everybody today loves a parable, but a parable was actually a form of judgment that was brought upon the audience because it, it hid the truth in plain sight. And here is verse 11, Jesus' answer. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then notice, Jesus quotes from Isaiah and from the prophets. 
In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus' answer to their question, why are you speaking in parables, was this is judgment upon them. To take away the truth, to pull it away, to... to Disguise it from them is an expression of, of God's divine judgment. How does the hardening of God work? How does he uh, harden? See, some have concluded God hardens by actively pushing people into evil. As if God is moving man to grab the gun and pull the gun out and point it and fire it and say, Ah, oh, God made him do that. That's not what the scriptures describe in hardening. The scriptures describe in hardening exactly what's happening right here. We speak in parables. We pull back the truth. We take it away. He pulls it and no longer sends the prophets. He no longer delivers the truth to them. So that they have eyes but they cannot see. And they have ears but they cannot perceive and understand and hear that truth. They can't recognize it sign of hardening is seen in one's appetite for the truth as there is no appetite to know to understand to receive to perceive it to accept it is a sign of hardening it's what sin does in the heart naturally sin gone unchecked hardens our heart to the truth sin gone unchecked pulls us away from the truth and from the light causes us to run into our own devices and to seek our own wisdom and understanding. Back to Romans 11 then. Jesus spoke in parables to bring judgment upon the Jewish leaders who had rejected and upon the crowds who had followed those leaders. Paul describes that hardening here as God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day david expanding on it they trusted in their own wisdom and their own understanding they set up their own tables the idea is they set up their own devices they set everything up as if they were right and it only became a snare for them and a trap fell upon them so their eyes would be darkened to see not and they would bend their backs forever that idea And again, this is Paul, that phrase there, bend their backs forever. This is Paul quoting the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which has this particular phrase in it. And Paul is latching on to that phrase and saying, this is what the wicked are like. They are like a child, like an infant that is rebelling on the changing table with their hardened back, resisting the parents caring in their life. Hardening is turning them over, giving them to themselves. 
and it is the taking away of truth and of understanding. See, this is a far cry from someone saying God is actually pushing people into evil, making them do evil. That's not God's explanation of his activity. And in fact, it actually contradicts what the scriptures say about God. The scriptures say about God that he is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, what, but he's still sovereign. He's still directing he is still accomplishing his good purposes. And what is he sovereign over? What is he accomplishing and doing? He is distinguishing between his people, the chosen, and the rest. That is God's work. What is it to distinguish? How? By pulling back, pulling away. And again, this is what we saw in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, when God turned man over to his own devices. When God pulled back his restraining grace, when God let man run to his own devices, that was an expression of God hardening their hearts because he turned them over to themselves. Now, someone would say, well, what about Pharaoh? What about that, as we covered in chapter 9? What about Pharaoh and God hardening? Well, that's for chapter 9, and that's for Exodus here, what Paul seeks to bring out is this, is the demonstration of God's pulling back his revelation and confusing his revelation so that man's heart would be hardened. Why would he even do that? Well, we get to answer that from verse 11 to verse 24. Why? But let me give you just one little reason why. That doesn't come out in 11 through 24. But it is a value to us, and it is this, that God would demonstrate who his people really are. That's why he would do it. And actually, that comes out as an implication from 11 through 24, so I'm borrowing on next week's message. But the point is, this is why God would do it, so that he can reveal his people, and he can demonstrate his work. Now, I had an introduction that I didn't use. I put it off until the end of the message here because I didn't know how much time I have left. So let me just answer like two questions that might come in our heart. One question is, why would we even study these things? Like, why would I wrestle through this? And the answer is, again, well, because, first of all, God has given us his word. He's inspired, us, he's inspired the word and given it to us through the, apostle, through the apostles so that we have it for us. And as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This prepares us. It equips us. It confronts false thinking in us. It guards us against being misled. It, it trains us to have a proper perspective about what is right. And so we come to these things because it is profitable but it also, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We come to it so that we would be equipped and fully prepared. So we must look at these things for our own edification and being built up. But maybe the second question that we need to ask, and I've been wanting to say this for a couple of weeks, but didn't have the time, but I have a couple minutes now, so I will take it. And they say, well, how does this affect our gospel? How does this affect how we share the gospel with others? I've had a few people confused, thinking, 
Do I have to go through all these details about sovereignty and election when I'm sharing the gospel? Do I have to get all of those things right? The answer is no. That is not the gospel. The gospel isn't God's sovereign. The gospel isn't God elects. Those are for our benefit. Those are for our instruction. They're for our encouragement. I mean, just think through the book of Romans in your mind. Where does the gospel begin? That man's a sinner in need of a savior and that everybody's guilty. That's what Paul reveals from Romans 1, verse 18 and following, that everyone's without excuse, Jew and Gentile, everyone's without excuse, everybody's in need of this. Through chapter 3 and verse 20, when Paul is saying, there's none righteous, not even one, they're all guilty, it doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile, everyone is under the just judgment of God because everyone is guilty. But... By faith in Christ, Christ came and bore our penalty. He took upon himself our transgressions and the wrath of God fell upon him so that through the shedding of his blood, God's wrath was satisfied. And when he was raised from the dead, it demonstrated a perfect sufficient sacrifice so that by faith in Christ, believing upon him, we can be reconciled to God. We who are far off, we who are the guilty, are reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the better Adam, Christ, who is the one prophesied from the Old Testament, the one that Abraham believed upon, the one that we believe upon. That sacrifice, that one, Jesus, is the one that reconciles God to man. That is Romans 1.18 through Romans, the end of chapter 5 of Romans. The rest from there is the explanation of the work of the gospel in our life. If you want to preach the gospel, preach man's a sinner, Christ is the only way of salvation, and that man needs salvation because God is holy. Preach that. You don't have to preach sovereignty. You don't have to preach election. You don't have to preach reprobation. You don't have to preach any of these other doctrines because those are for the rest of us as we have believed for our edification and growth. And that's what we see in Romans. So that's why when they get all the debate, could you be an Arminian and preach the gospel? Can you be a Calvinist and preach the gospel? Yes, because the gospel isn't wrapped up in what you believe about sovereignty. So, okay, then we can abandon all doctrine. We can get rid of sovereignty language because I don't like it. Well, by the way, just need to remind you of this truth. And this is what Paul is bringing out. Verse 6 is so powerful again in Romans eleven six, 6. Because he, God, God draws out this truth. <clears throat> Verse 5 and 6, actually. It says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There you have election. But if it is by grace, notice... It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. You need to understand this. Your doctrine of sovereignty protects the gospel. If you abandon sovereignty, if you abandon election, if you abandon God selecting his people, you then abandon the gospel of grace. You make a different gospel. A gospel that is now on works, now on human responsibility, now on man to do it. And it goes against what God has defended. Sovereignty defends the gospel. It doesn't hurt the gospel. That's why we proclaim it. 
because we know God is at work. But we don't confuse that sovereign work as if that's the message. No, the message is man's need for reconciliation with God, and you have it through Christ. Marvelous truths for us, so powerful and necessary, and we're just thankful as Paul is unfolding these things for us. He's equipping us to be more prepared to rightly handle his word and understand God's purposes so that it will ultimately lead us to Romans eleven thirty three and following, oh, the depths of the riches of God, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It should lead us to worship. All right, now I can breathe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these truths, for the riches of your word, for the profound truth that is demonstrated here. Thank you for your spirit that gives us understanding and leads us through. Thank you for the clarity of your message, for we can see your testimonies over and over again. Indeed, we oftentimes feel like children needing to have the same instruction over and over again so we finally get it. And yet, these same truths are enough for the trained scholar who has given and invested his whole self into to understand the riches and depth. So is able to minister to us at whatever stage we are in to lead us to a place where we glorify you. And so we ask, Father, Guard our hearts from those ways in which we may harden ourselves. We would trust in our own wisdom. May we be extra sensitive to be self-reliant rather than relying upon you. May we be extra careful in our activities, always turning back to your truth to be built up and edified in. And we are thankful that you minister to us in so many ways. For indeed, we can see in our own lives the ways that we've drifted, but you've been kind to restore us and remind us of these things. And we're thankful for the testimony of your scriptures that, that energize us and remind us of your greatness and your purposes so that our hearts are encouraged. So that as we preach the truth and we are obedient to the command to go out and to proclaim your gospel, on the other hand, we are absolutely confident that you've gone before us you're marking out the path. You're accomplishing your good purposes. Your word is not returning void. So in all of this, Father, help us to give you praise and glory for everything you're accomplishing. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.